Romans 15.1 says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. And Father, we just humbly look to you this morning. We ask for just the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you know where each one of us is at at this day and hour in our lives. And Lord, we know that we need as always to hear you speak to us. Lord, whatever it is that you want to say to us, give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled this morning as we open this part of your word, we pray that you would bless your word and that your same spirit that inspired this very book that we hold would be our instructor and our teacher and the one who interprets and applies it for our hearts and lives this morning. Let us hear what you'd say, Lord. We ask in worship now we can reverently look to you and expect you to speak to us. Bless your word in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, harmony is the combining of different things in a way that works together. Uh, most of us think of that word when we ponder maybe music, singing, or for example, listening to an orchestra pr- play together. If you have a masterful conductor, they're able to take multitudes of different instruments and somehow coordinate all those things to orchestrate beautiful harmony in music. Well, God is the master orchestrator if you would as it pertains to conducting and facilitating harmony especially as it relates to harmony in relationships among people and that really is what we're going to see together this morning in our text it's addressing for us possessing differences but yet still living together in harmony not needing to set aside our uniqueness our various views and even different opinions and convictions that even we may hold as Christians but yet holding those things maintaining those differences and distinctions and yet still living together and operating together 
together in harmony. Remember our backdrop because it is critical, especially to this section of Scripture. Since chapter 14, verse 1, Paul has been discussing the existence of different convictions or views that are held among Christians. That there in the church in Rome and even in the modern church today, there are going to be different convictions as it pertains to not essential doctrinal truths that the Bible is clear about, but things that we might refer to as the non-essentials of spiritual life. Christian liberties, and it talked about how it's okay to hold different opinions in the areas of what the Bible called doubtful things, or we might say, as we define, areas where the Scripture does not clearly address certain issues, where the Bible does not directly and specifically speak about a subject or give clear teaching on or prohibition about. In that day, it was over whether they could eat meat in relation to their spiritual convictions or whether certain days were important to worship on. In today's day, there's still the same thing. Christians have different convictions on non-essential areas. Is it right or spiritual or not spiritual for a Christian to drink a glass of wine with their meal with their family is it right or wrong different styles of music or is it okay for uh, you know a christian to educate their child this way privately or the public school system or homeschooling again these are all areas where we hold convictions about whether we should dress certain ways whether it's okay to you know attend a movie or not christians hold different convictions about these things but these aren't areas where the bible speaks to specifically and clearly prohibit certain things. These are areas where we have liberty in the grace of God to hold different views and convictions and even to exercise some of the liberties that we have in Christ depending upon our conviction before God and what the Holy Spirit would testify to our conscience. Yet Paul was teaching us that in regards to these things, we shouldn't allow those things to make us become critical of one another. Those should never become sources of criticism where we begin to judge someone else's servant. Instead, we should let people serve Jesus and trust that between them and Jesus, if they have a conviction about that, that's something that's settled between them and the Lord, and we shouldn't let it become a source of contention or criticism, nor should we exercise our liberties, Paul said, in a way where we'll be start to stumble other people. That though I may have a liberty to do something in Christ, sometimes I need to consider as I walk in love, is it really necessary to exercise this liberty maybe in the presence of someone else or even period in a way that then it may stumble someone else. And sometimes for love's sake, we take that into consideration as we learn how to walk in love. Now, still sort of addressing this same thing, Paul picks up now chapter 15. Take notice with me there back in verse one, where he then says, we then who are strong ought to bear with, he says, the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul here, including himself, encourages now the spiritually strong, he says there in verse 1, not to become impatient and to begin then to uh, sort of push ahead, but instead to lovingly and patiently, he says here, provide help 
to the weaker brothers and sisters that are among them in the body of Christ. Now, remember here what the Bible means as we look at verse 1 here, as it refers to the, the strong and the weak in regards to believers. We saw in chapter 14, and we see here again, that the weak believer is the believer who has a very sensitive conscience in regards to certain matters and issues. They are the believer who holds very strict, somewhat rigid standards in regards to what they will do or what they will not do. And they have a very sensitive conscience and that kind of therefore makes them live a little more stringently in regards to what they feel they must refrain from because in their conscience they feel that it may be questionable or maybe evil or not right before God. These are the believers we saw in our text in chapter 14 who would eat only vegetables because they didn't want to take a chance eating the meat that may have been somehow offered to an idol. These were the, the believers we saw in chapter 14 who felt it was very necessary to give special honor to certain days and they esteemed a certain day. They had strong convictions basically that they need to adhere to certain spiritual routines and that was important to them to adhere to routine and to not go outside a routine or protocol because those things were very essential. Now the strong believers referred to those who are a little more settled in their conscience and they felt a little more at peace in regards to some of the non-essential matters and issues they have a firm grasp on the grace of god and so they feel a little more relaxed and at ease in regards to some of those areas and were maybe a little more willing to be flexible to participate in areas of christian liberty where god grants that freedom and liberty and spiritual maturity has helped them to somewhat maybe work through some of these areas of conscience where others were a little more sensitive or maybe those who were new in the faith who were still sorting out their conscience and convictions spiritually, uh, they've progressed past that. And so they're a little more at ease, not quite as concerned and adamant as it pertains to things like routine spiritually or maintaining certain regulations. Now, they're fully devoted still the difference is, is they just feel a little more flexible as they understand the grace of God as it pertains to those things. Well, Paul now, verse 1 here, look what he does. He now says, we then who are strong, so he instructs the spiritually strong or the more mature believer here, verse 1. He instructs the spiritually strong, he says, to bear with, he says, the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, the term here, the scruples of the weak, that word scruples speaks of mental reservations that would hold people back from a particular action. That's what he's referring to here. Uh, things that would make a person maybe not be too sure about. The scruples of the weak is a reference to, you know, I'm not certain whether that's okay or not. So they have a certain scruple. It doesn't want an interesting word here, but it refers to how some people in their mental reservation might pull back from doing something out of fear or concern of whether or not that would still be spiritual or whether or not that might accidentally somehow be evil or wrong or displease God. And so Paul says, as a stronger believer, we need to learn how to bear with these things among maybe less mature Christians, those newer in the faith. And when he says the word here, we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, that word bear with does not mean the idea of you know, tolerating somebody but in frustration. In other words, you, you grin and bear it 
kind of a thing. That, that's not the concept here that Paul's conveying where we bear with somebody, but we're rather agitated in the process where we're somewhat, you know, oh, would you just get over it, man? Just grow up already and mature. Stop being so legalistic. That's not the idea here. The term that Paul uses there when he says to bear with the mental reservations, the sensitive conscience of those weaker in the faith, he says, that term there literally means to carry something that's burdensome or weighing another person down. So what he's saying is that in loving understanding, we come alongside fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this way, and we try and patiently, lovingly assist and, and help them, maybe with that particular area of struggle or where they're at spiritually at this point in their life and giving them grace to work through those things and develop their own convictions as they need to as a Christian in their relationship with Jesus. He says we're not to disregard them and just, he says, verse 1, just please ourselves. And this is the danger in this area where maybe someone who's more mature spiritually, sometimes those stronger or more mature spiritually can sometimes get a little impatient and they get frustrated maybe with someone who's newer in the faith or still working through their convictions and they just push ahead with what they're comfortable with in the grace of God and then they disregard with no sensitivity or compassion others around them. And Paul said last week in chapter 14, that's not walking in love anymore. Because at that point, we can begin to destroy someone else just for the sake of our liberty. The point Paul's trying to drive home here in verse 1 as he summarizes these issues from chapter 14 is he's saying, look, if you're stronger spiritually, if you're stronger spiritually, then he says, then demonstrate that by this way, by your ability to be selfless to a greater degree. If you're stronger spiritually, then demonstrate by that by your attitude as it pertains to interacting with others where you can show your maturity in Christ enables you to deny yourself to a greater degree, to say no to yourself and to not have to do what pleases you or what you know because you're more mature. Of course, we're able to do this as Christians. You're, you're constant. He says, no, let your maturity be evidenced in that you find the importance and value of others and saying, you know what? Look, I want to come alongside this younger brother in the faith. I want to come alongside this sister who may still be struggling with this and in sensitivity and love, not have to just do what I want and what pleases me, but instead, how can I help bear them along and assist them in this time in their life and sort of bear up under these things for their sake and love? Again, Galatians 6.2, which is a book, the book of Galatians, about legalism versus grace in Christian living, it's in that book that Paul says in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, Christian love fulfilling the law of Christ, which is a law of love, says, you know what? It's not always about me. It's not just having my preference or my way or what I'm comfortable with. It's about what would be best for you. How can I help you? How can I come along in love and bear up you during this time? Now, Paul goes on with that train of thought, verse 2, by saying, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Now, please be careful here. This is not, and you look at the language in verse 2, this is not an instruction to become a people pleaser to everyone who's around us as our neighbor. 
Let me just say, the Bible and Jesus warn and instruct us not to do that. Being just a people pleaser generically can be quite dangerous and that won't ever help other people. In fact, again, in that same epistle, the epistle of Galatians, as Paul's dealing with legalism versus grace within the church, it's there in that letter that Paul also says in Galatians chapter one, as he's addressing this, he says, do I seek to please men? If I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Jesus himself said, beware of when all men speak well of you. Jesus himself said, look, if everybody has nothing but good things to say about you, that may not always be a good thing. That may not necessarily mean that you're on target. It may mean that you're more concerned about the approval of others than obedience and approval of Jesus himself. So Jesus said, look, just because everybody speaks well of you, that, that may not always be a good thing. So I bring this up as we look at this text to realize trying to be a people pleaser generally or just universally a people pleaser, look, that's not healthy personally. And nor really is that something helpful to other people. And it can even be quite dangerous spiritually. And I think we have to remember that being just a people pleaser generally sometimes causes Christians to make destructive compromises in regards to sound, clear doctrine that the Bible is very evident about. And sometimes for the sake of wanting to be a people pleaser and for the, what's called the, you know, the sake of unity, people compromise true, clear, essential doctrines of the Christian faith for the sake of saying, well, we just want to have unity. We want to have peace. That's, that's not always a good thing. That could be a very destructive thing. Sometimes being a people pleaser can cause a Christian to make concessions in their spiritual life or concessions and compromise morally to just please another person or to have your fellow student or friend's approval so you compromise morally to have the approval of someone else. That's not a good thing. Or sometimes being a people pleaser can even cause us to just flat out disobey the Lord just because we want to make somebody else happy. And that's not a good thing either because our first allegiance is to Jesus. The context of what Paul is talking about here where the Bible says to please others is simply asking us not to be pleasing ourselves, here's the point, before or ahead of other people in a way that won't be good for them. So he's saying here, look, don't just please people generically, but look what the text says, verse 2. He says, let each please his neighbor, this is the key, for his good. Please someone for their good. I point that out for this reason. Because there are times when pleasing another person may not be what's doing good for them. For example, if I know somebody who has a, a struggle with substance abuse, with drugs or with alcohol, and they say, hey, can you give me 50 bucks? It would make them happy. It would please them if I gave them $50. But would that really be for their good? I may please them, but am I pleasing them? It may not be for their good. Because it may be something they use then in an unhealthy way. So there are times in life where we have to realize sometimes pleasing people may not be for their good. That's why we have to put the two together. Okay, sometimes in love's sake, I behave selflessly and I defer to what's better for you or you defer to what's better for someone else to please them when you know it will be something that's good for them. 
Well, you know it's something that will help them. But if it's not going to be good for them, then you have to reevaluate and use wisdom and discernment. What he's talking about here is not putting ourselves ahead of before others, but doing this in a way whereby we please another person's preference in the way whereby it benefits them. Maybe it helps them grow, it lets them learn or not be stumbled because of our liberty or be knocked off track. And he says when we do this, if it's for their good, it will, it will edify them. It will lead to edification. It will build them up spiritually and strengthen them. Again, we see here the spiritual calling and obligation of the stronger believers is what? To assist the weaker in the faith. Our calling is to do what we can to try and help build up and strengthen those weaker or maybe newer in the faith. Question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is there maybe even right now in your life this morning, maybe a situation that exists where the Lord is asking you is perhaps the one who is stronger spiritually. And perhaps because you are the one stronger spiritually, the Lord is asking you, instead of just using that strength self-righteously to overpower that weaker person and set them straight, to maybe in grace, since you are stronger spiritually, to help carry them along in their weakness for a little bit and to bear them up in love and in grace and patience and bear that burden right now, whatever it may be, as they sort through some things and work through some things. Again, Paul says, let each please his neighbor for his good. Leading to edification, verse 3, he then says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul sets forth the example of Jesus as the basis and the motivation for why, he says here, we should do these things. The clearest reason we should not seek to please ourselves at the expense of others, he says, verse 3, for even Christ, even Jesus, our Lord, did not please himself. And again, what is our spiritual profession as Christians? We profess that we are followers of Christ. Well, 1 John 2, 6 says... He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And here the Bible says the way that Jesus walked is that Christ did not please himself. Just ponder, if you would, the life of Jesus. Jesus' life, was it not, the epitome of what it means to be selfless? The epitome of selflessness not being self-serving was Christ himself and the way that he lived. Jesus forsook his rights, his privileges. He gave up all his eternal and heavenly entitlements, let go of the pleasures he could partake of, and he lived on this earth with the desire and the pursuit of not pleasing himself. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was the epitome of emptying himself, not pleasing himself, so that, why? So that he could please the Father in heaven and so that he could help people. That was the epitome of Jesus' life. Now notice here, verse 3, the fact that Jesus did not please himself, it actually cost him personally. It actually caused him to suffer for doing that. It says, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes from Psalm 69 there, which is a messianic psalm about the life of Jesus. That's a depiction there of the words of Jesus speaking of how as a direct result of choosing not to please himself, 
but to please his father in heaven and do what was best for humanity. As a result, Jesus suffered and endured the insults and the reproaches that were cast against God as the result of living that way. Choosing not to please himself, you could say, came with a personal price for Jesus. His endeavor not to please himself, but to please the Father and to help people actually at times caused life to be pretty painful for Jesus. It actually caused Jesus to be hurt and wounded verbally and even physically ultimately. And Jesus endured suffering at the hands of people because of living that way. Sound familiar? The same happens in our lives as Christians as we seek to walk with Christ and honor Christ. Philippians 1.29 says to us, and I'm sure it's in all your Bible promise books, for to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Isn't it interesting? And the Bible even uses the word granted like it's a consolation prize. It's been granted to you. It's a special gift for believing on Christ to suffer for his sake. All right, great. Can I sign up and be a Christian? That sounds wonderful. But the reality is, as you walk with Jesus, you begin to realize, and if not, it's important that you do embrace and realize this morning, hear me, that doing what pleases God, choosing not to please yourself, and doing what pleases the Father in heaven and what helps people at times is going to result in enduring mistreatment from people. It's not always going to be rewarded. There are times when you're going to be verbally abused and insulted and reproached and have mean and cruel and hurtful things said to you because you choose not to please yourself and to try and please your Father and to try and do what's helpful for people, just as Jesus did. There are going to be times when mistreatment at the hands of people come to us because of doing those things. Yet, because we are stronger in Christ, we should embrace it. And we should embrace it for Christ's sake and for the cause of Christ and realizing how that may help the other person, even as Jesus, when he experienced what he did, the reproaches, the insults, the abuse, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He saw the bigger picture. And in the spirit of Christ, we need to be willing to do the same. Well, having just mentioned what was written in the scripture, Psalm 69, and how that directed Jesus to live out his life, Paul's mind is drawn how that also applies to our experience as well. He goes on, verse 4, to say, For whatever things were written before, all of Old Testament, they were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So here, look at this. The Old Testament Scriptures, we see, were not written just to record interesting Jewish history, though they do. The Old Testament was not written just to give us really interesting and insightful poetry though it does it was not written just to give us really exciting prophecy and what's going to happen predictions into the future rather the old testament was written to personally benefit and help christians in their spiritual walks to equip us with greater spiritual understanding to develop us into greater maturity as a follower of Jesus. Do you see what the Bible says there, verse 4? It says those things, the Old Testament, they were written, look at it, for our learning. For our learning. One of the primary purposes of the bigger part of your Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, one of the primary purposes is that we might learn that thing. 
I think here the Bible puts before us a strong validation to remind us, yeah, we actually should read and study the Old Testament. It actually has a very important purpose. The Holy Spirit is telling us the Old Testament was given to us to be learned from. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, that the Old Testament is important to learn and to receive instruction from. In fact, it is essential for our overall spiritual growth. It's critical to bring us into full development and maturity. It's kind of like exercising but still eating like a slob or dieting but sitting on the couch and doing nothing. Those two don't work together. If you want to lose weight and become healthier, you exercise and you eat an according diet. Well, the same thing. Some Christians, you know, they devour the New Testament, but they ignore the Old Testament. Well, listen, God's saying, I inspired the whole thing, the whole thing. And the greater part of it is the Old Testament. And what God is reminding, look, those things were written for our learning, Paul says here. They were written for us to learn them. That's why it should be given proper place in our lives and the Old Testament should be given proper place in the church. That's why we study the Old Testament on Wednesday evenings because it has an important place in our lives and in our Christian learning. Jesus testified to that reality. Luke 24, he said, All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus testified, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, those things reveal things about me. We can get to know Christ better even as we study the Old Testament. Paul, when he's 2 Timothy 3, says that the Old Testament scriptures, he's referring to all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man and women of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote that, guess what was around? The Old Testament. He was saying that about the Old Testament at that time, that it's profitable and helpful. So here Paul shows in verse 4 how a commitment to all of Scripture, look at it, he says it actually even benefits Christians as we relate to one another. Verse 4 he says, it was written for our learning that we, as we learn the Old Testament through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So as we learn what's written in the scriptures, its living truths affect and impact us. And Paul says here, we develop then patience and comfort within ourselves from the scriptures. The word patience you use there, some of your translations render that perseverance. It's a Greek word that speaks of bearing up under a lot of pressure, having a lot of weight that you're carrying, but not buckling under the weight, but continuing to move forward. That's the idea there. The word comfort he uses is... Some of your translations render it encouragement. It speaks of being comforted or given courage in the midst of dealing with difficulties. And here we see that it's through that patience and comfort that we receive from the scriptures, he says also, that we then also in turn end up having hope. The word hope, when the Bible uses it, speaks of the expectancy of coming good or the assurance that something will come that is better. Now, certainly that is true in regards to our personal lives and difficulties. As I read the Bible, as I study the Old Testament, as we look at it together on Wednesday nights, as I read it, certainly the scriptures give to me comfort in hard times. And as you read the scriptures, you find that you're given 
patience and perseverance and you receive that through the word of God going into you, how to exercise patience so that you then have hope from those lessons that you learn to say, you know what? I believe God can part my Red Sea. And I'm going to persevere because I believe that God's going to slay the Goliath in my life. And we receive that hope and that perseverance from the Scripture. But again, the context, let's remember, in this section is foremost in regards to relating to fellow Christians amidst our difficulties and differences. What he's stating here is that being in the Scriptures and all the more being in the Scriptures together as a Christian body has a wonderful beneficial effect because it's there we receive needed patience and comfort and hope in regards to relating with each other. That we become more patient people. We develop maturity and are equipped to persevere in regards to relationships with one another. Even to the place where we even then have hope in our attitudes towards people where we remain hopeful in regards to what's still possible for a person. And we receive that hope and that help as we as Christians commit to learning the Scriptures together. Paul goes on, verse 5 now, to say, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look what Paul does, verse 5 now. He now records basically a prayer. Here's a simple prayer. What's Paul doing? He's asking God now to supply them, to grant them the spiritual grace and the spiritual power needed for relational harmony. I think we learn a few things from what Paul does there in verse 5 and 6. First of all, pretty obvious, is that praying for God's intervention Praying for God's assistance is a vital part to developing unity, to maintaining unity, and to restoring unity in relationships. That's why Paul inserts that little prayer there of intercession for the Christians there in Rome. Because Paul understood despite dynamics that may have existed there, God can change people's hearts. And God can deal with people's stubborn minds towards one another. So Paul says, you know what, I pray. I pray that the God of patience and the God of comfort will help you to be of one mind, to be like-minded. And notice, the source of what we need and even what we receive from the Scriptures is found, where's the source? In God Himself. You see the same terms Paul repeatedly uses from verse 4 back again now in verse 5? He now says, the God of patience. The God of comfort. These are the virtues of God himself, the very nature of our God, that he is actually a God of patience, a God of perseverance, which means this, that he's a God who bears up under a lot without cracking and wigging out. And I'm thankful we serve a God like that because I've tested his patience a few times. There's been a few occasions where the Lord's persevered with me a little bit in relation to dishonoring him or failing. Isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who is very patient in what he sees and observes among humanity? That we serve a God who never falters under the load of humanity's offense and shortcomings and things that we do on this earth and despite constant failures and how we dishonor God or hurt God and he's subjected to that, he remains incredibly patient 
and he perseveres with us in love and mercy and compassion. I mean, consider what God perseveres with as you look at how people behave in the unsaved world. And God patiently perseveres with that. He bears up under it without just unleashing out-of-control wrath. He, he perseveres in patience under that. Think of how God even patiently perseveres at times, even with the behavior of Christians and our own failures or our own little times of backsliding or rebellion against God or the times where we act in certain ways in spiritual immaturity. I mean, just take a walk with that today and think about how that's been true in your own life. How God's persevered with your shortcomings. How God is borne up under the times where maybe we were acting a little flaky or fickle or immature spiritually. And he persevered with that. And he didn't change the whole plan for our lives, but he graciously persevered. He let us grow through it and, and he just perseveres with us. He says he's the God of patience, but more than that, he's also the God of comfort or the God of encouragement. And is that not true? How many times has God comforted very compassionately comforted people who have fallen spiritually or really messed up and they bottomed out and they did their Peter thing and they denied the Lord and really blew it and instead of God coming along and just crushing their spirit God graciously and compassionately comes alongside of them in their weakness and their stumbling and he inspires courage in them instead to say to them look when you return Peter you strengthen your brethren. In other words, Peter, I know you're coming back. Peter, I believe, if nobody else believes, I believe that you're going to return from this failure. I believe that you're going to come back. That, that, and, and he inspires courage. And he inspires encouragement. And compassionately comforts those who fail and fall short. Now, since he's the God of patience and comfort, Paul says here, that's why he can supply and grant by his spirit the ability for us to exercise that patience and comfort to one another, he says, verse 5 and 6 here, so that we can be like-minded toward one another. Which means this, I can hold a difference of conviction than you. You can have a different viewpoint about some non-essential area, yet we remember we're one in Christ. And therefore, God, in His patience and in His comfort, can help us to disagree agreeably and to still be like-minded for the greater matters of cause of Christ. That we can say, look, yeah, we can have differences, but for the cause and testimony of Christ, there's a bigger picture here. I want you to note with me verse 6, what he says there. This is the intended goal God's after. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal is that though having differences amongst us, that we set them aside to join together in what? Worship that we set those things aside for the experience of worship. There will always be differences among Christians. We're never going to agree 100% on everything, but there's one shared conviction that every child of God should agree on, and that's this, that we want to glorify our Father in heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's one shared conviction we should all want to occupy our time with, it's that main thing. And you know why? Because ultimately, that's our ultimate destiny anyway. Revelation 4 and 5 read, it says that one day, Christians from all denominations, all convictions, all opinions are going to all be around the throne of God in His presence from every tribe and tongue and nation and kindred 
worshiping the Father, adoring Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to stay committed to worshiping and praying together even now with other believers. Listen, please hear me. Do not, do not let petty issues that arise even among Christianity make you cease from gathering together corporately with Christians. We need to be praying together. We need to be worshiping together. And the truth is, there's something about that that helps inspire Christian harmony. That we can have disagreements, even hurts and things. But when we come together and we're unifying, worshiping God and loving Jesus, there's something about that that is not only very unifying, but it actually somehow becomes even a little bit healing sometimes. Because all of a sudden, in the midst of that, the hurt and the animosity starts to dissipate a little bit as you're worshiping the Lord together and praying together in light of that. Paul says, verse 7, Therefore, receive one another, he says, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So again, despite our differences, we're to graciously, we're told, accept and welcome each other just as Jesus did to us. That word receive, Paul uses there, means to warmly embrace, to welcome or grant access as if in friendship. Let me say this. The Bible says we should receive one another as Christ received us. If there is ever a place, by golly, yes, I said that. If there is ever a place where there should be gracious, loving acceptance Should it not be in the body of Christ? Should it not be among Christians where we graciously accept anybody no matter where they're at or what they're going through or what they've done? Or even a fellow Christian where they're at, what they're going through or how they flaked out or what they've done. If there's a place where people need to be received and welcomed and embraced, Certainly, it's the body of Christ. And if there's ever a place where we should have the grace and the love and the compassion and patience to be able to do that. Look, if we can't do that here, people aren't going to get that anywhere in the world. I promise you that. So if there's ever a place that we should be willing to embrace and welcome and receive people despite their opinions and views or their race or their ethnicity or their variations in age groups. This is the place the Bible is saying, despite our quirks and personality, we should graciously, mercifully be receiving one another, embracing and welcoming one another. And sometimes, look, I understand, sometimes our differences or even difficulties that maybe happen and causes a conflict between two people, interactions or experiences, a conflict, that tempts us to then want to refuse somebody or to reject somebody, or to set them aside somehow. And we even have great ways of spiritualizing that if we know the Bible well. We'll even spiritualize our rejection and cloak it under something else. Yet the truth is, if we're doing that because of something that's happened, sometimes God says, no, what you're doing is you're holding out on that person. What you're doing is resisting and refusing that person rather than graciously receiving that person as we're instructed to. Note we're told here how to receive each other. Do you see verse 7 there? He says, how should you receive one another? Just as Christ received you. That's a pretty tough standard there. How did Jesus receive you and I? Exactly like we were. How many times has Jesus re-received 
you and I, many times over. And he says, when we do this, it's to the glory of God, it glorifies God. Now, because Paul knew one of the great divides in the early church was a separation and segregation between Jew and Gentile, he alludes to how God always had an intention through Jesus to unify these two people groups that had great separation. He says, verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant, notice, to the circumcision. That's a reference to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. For the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the Father. So Paul's describing how one of the many purposes Jesus came to serve was to reach first his Jewish brethren. He humbly came to ultimately, as a Jew, reach the Jews to fulfill the messianic promises given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his first order of ministry, as we see in the Gospels, was to reach the Jews first, to confirm the promises made in the messianic Bible of the Old Testament that's given to them to fulfill those scriptures. But notice his becoming a servant was not limited just to the Jews because look at the text goes on, verse 9. And that the Gentiles also might glorify God for his mercy. So God's clear intention revealed in his word, Paul quotes many references we'll see in a moment, was that God ultimately intended to reach Gentiles also. And it would be through the rejection of Jesus that the Jews made historically in his first coming that would then throw open the door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy as they found it in Jesus Christ. We saw that back in chapters 9 through 11. Paul, wanting to validate that, just rambles off some quotes here. He says, as it's written, in other words, scripture tells this. For this reason, I'll confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He quotes Psalm 18, showing how it would uh, cause Jesus to testify of God among the Gentiles. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So he quotes there from Deuteronomy 32, how Jesus would one day reach out and cause the Gentiles to rejoice just like the chosen people of Israel. And again, Paul says, verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you people. So Psalm 117, another reference to Gentiles, just like the Jews, praising God, even as the chosen people of Israel did. Verse 12, and again, Paul says, Isaiah the prophet says, there shall be a root of Jesse. He shall spring up and rise to reign over the Gentiles. And in him, all the Gentiles shall hope. So speaking of the kingdom of God there, Paul shows how Isaiah the prophet also spoke of the Gentiles experiencing the lordship of Christ and finding hope in Jesus as well. What Paul's doing in these verses here is he sort of rattles off these Old Testament quotes. He's not trying to show off his Bible knowledge. Wow, that guy's in a lot of the Bible. What Paul's doing is he's quoting from every major portion of the Old Testament scripture. He quotes from the law, he quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from the prophets, and he says, look, the whole book, the whole book proves that God is not just the God of the Jews, but he wants to be a God of every Gentile nation as well. He's speaking there of the reality of how Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that meant all lost people, every lost person, everyone who would need Christ, that he became a humble servant to not only reach lost people, but to bring unity as well. Galatians 3 says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek. We set aside those identity differences that exist when we come to Christ. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says, referring to Jesus. He himself is our peace, who's made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity And it speaks of how making two one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, having a wall of separation eradicated through Christ. Jesus' suffering and death, yes, was foremost to reconcile people to God. But a part of Jesus' suffering and death, ladies and gentlemen, please hear me, was also to bring reconciliation among people on this planet. And we should value that. We should honor that. Jesus broke down walls of separation so that there could always be opportunity for restoration in relationships. Because what happens? People have convictions. They have attitudes about certain people. You may be here this morning and maybe you have some wall up in your heart or mind towards certain types of people. That's not Christ-like. You're a Christian now. That wall should not exist anymore. Maybe you're here this morning and you've had some unhealthy interaction or hurtful or problematic experience with another person and because of it, you've put up a wall of separation or you have animosity towards another person. Hey, can I beseech you because of what Jesus did? Whatever it takes to reconcile, do that. Do that. Let's stand together. Let's pray.